0: little bit more focused on simply explaining things from a perspective of how we should rest how we should sit how we should establish ourselves in our faith Paul tells the Thessalonians to keep yourself in the love of God and I mentioned that last week and sometimes we hear this instruction we go oh wow how do I do these things? And if we just continue to read the Bible in the context, we realize that it's not us doing these things, but it is God doing these things in us. And that the greatest damage to our faith, to our Christian life, to our peace, to our foundation, to our fulfillment is when we try to take the reins in any way. In any way. Now, that is not saying that we don't have responsibilities that we don't have obligations, that we don't have things that we must be doing that are prudent and fruitful. But these things are not tied to our salvation, not tied to our justification, not tied to what God has accomplished through Christ already. It's a finished work. And these things are also not tied to any way our security. However, they do help. They do grow. They are, in some way, when you read the Bible, the means of grace through which God has promised his presence is established in us. So if we're not reading the Bible while we are not separated from God, we will feel that way, you see. When we obey the simple instructions to love one another and we strive unto that end and we put our needs as our other people's needs as equal as our own. It's not like it's going to make give us brownie points with God. It's not going to establish us to be this more pious or, or holy person because we are righteous in the righteousness of Christ alone. But it does avoid the trap of thinking either I'm doing pretty good and I'm, I'm all right or I need to do better or God's not going to love me. It doesn't change who we are before our Father. Just as our children, for those of us that have children, would do things that we don't like or not do things we ask them to. It doesn't mean that we love them any less or that we will seek to destroy them. I have very close people that I love, very close people who have left the faith through the years. Family and friends. Men who I used to call deeply brother in the faith and now they are, they deny it. And I understand that in these times that our culture puts a a red flag up, puts a a fire on, gets a blowtorch out and tries to melt everything down because it is the end of the world it's not the end of the world to be in the will of God while it may be detrimental, while it may be horrifying while it may be terrifying, no matter what it is if it's not unbelief, it's death if it's not death, it's divorce if it's not divorce, it's destruction or some other deed that could be bad deviled eggs But nothing changes. Nothing really changes in the scope of life as people who are found in the grace of God and the love of God because nothing can separate us from that love. So when people leave the faith, we love them still. When people struggle, we love them more. When people get wrong doctrine, we love them deeply, more deeply. That's the instruction of the Bible. But yet, when I talk to people, when I talk to people who leave the faith, a lot of times what I get, now this is anecdotal, this is my two and a half decades of interaction with people in a professional way. Professional meaning vocationally as a pastor. I can't say that there's been but two instances where this wasn't the case. People leaving the faith, in other words, I don't believe there's a God anymore or some level of that. Here's the crux of their decision, notice I said their decision to not believe, is that they can't put together the oppressive, judgmental, really unloving, twisted way in which the Christian culture and the God of the Bible, as they read it, hates people. because they're not the way we think they should be. And I'd say that in the oh one, two, I don't know, few churches that I've pastored through the years, that's been the case too in the congregation. There's a group of people that we hate. There's a type of person that we hate. But we don't hate them. We love them, so we keep it real and we speak the truth in love. It's loving, you know. No, loving is about the approach, the attitude. Loving is about the intention. And love is never calling someone to the carpet about their unbelief. Is that what Jesus did on the cross? Don't you make me get up here. (laughs) Don't you make me die for you. If you just get your act together, I wouldn't have to do this evangelism, and I'm going to say some strong things here because it's just the way I am in my poetry. Evangelism is probably one of the most demonic expressions of Christian culture in the world today. The way it is, by and large, holistically. So you unpack that. I can't repeat it. It came out of nowhere. So, you know, you unpack that how you want and I'll correct it if I need to. But here's what I mean. The way we see people sharing what they think the faith is, and the way people oversee those who say they're in the faith, and there's air quotes for those who are listening, (laughs) Um, not those who are listening in air quotes, but the faith, is not biblical in its construction and its application. The Bible doesn't tell us we must be the way things, the way most people are. How are most people? Well, most people fall into one of these categories. But of the people that I'm thinking of, most of them, okay, are like this. Well, what do you believe about propitiation? Pro-who-what? Is that a type of meat? No, that's priscata. Propitiation. Is that a disease? No. You don't know what propitiation is? Have you ever read your Bible? If you don't understand propitiation, you're probably not saved. Oh, Christ didn't die on the cross? He didn't say it was finished? That's how I'm saved. I was saved when He said it is finished. I was saved in His decree before the foundation of the world. See, we've even got language issues. Language issues that Paul and James and John and Matthew and Luke and the rest of them don't use. Peter. When we say things like that, we're really putting an emphasis that culture has massaged into this tiny little box. Say, okay, we know that you are indeed in Christ if XYZ, XYZ, XYZ. No, we can say, we know that you understand these things if you understand these things. And then when someone doesn't give the right report, let's just say it's on justification. Some people have watered down justification to mean just as if I'd never sinned. I'm justified. That's not even the point. It's not even the place. Justification is so deep and it's so rich. And the Bible doesn't really, you can't go to the book of justified and look under the, the, the headings and figure it all out. You have to read, you have to live in it, you have to breathe in it. Beloved, the Christian experience is a, is a manifold experience. It's a, an experience of divine interaction. It's, a experience, it's an experience of a spiritual thing that's happening, in our, and, and we're unconsciously aware of it. It's, a, and it's an experience where when we do typical, practical, earthly things like read some letters... God, the Holy Spirit, does a supernatural work in us that we're not even aware of until one day we look into the mirror of our soul and go, Oh my goodness, the Lord is good. Look what I've come to know. Look what I've come to realize. And there are some people who, when they think about faith, they can never find assurance because of the constant nagging, the constant pressure, the constant... just the constant hatred within themselves and from, with other, from others. And, I mean, you think about it. Look at all the different. If I were to say to you, what's a cult that you know, you can name them, right? If I could say to you, what's a false gospel that's popular? You know, there's not any new ones in my lifetime. They're all just repurposed, warmed over old ones that's always been around. They, they, were, in the round, they were around in the time of Jesus philosophically and theologically, and they're around now. It's just, a, it's just yeah, you see this table? We're going to turn it into something else. Well, the foundation's still a table. You see what I'm saying? There's nothing new under the sun. So if you find a new heresy, if you find a new false doctrine, if you find, there's usually a historical place for it. You say, well, it's the 12th century or it's the 15th century. Well, you know what? Let's go on back. I bet the Gnostics had a version of it somewhere. Or I bet the Judaizers had some implications somewhere. Everything grows on something else. And the truth of the matter is, is that the Bible was written to reveal to us the grace of God and his love for us. The Bible was written to correct our misunderstandings and to unwhat Deceive God's people. The New Testament letters almost, without fail, talk about some level of undeceiving the people of God. Either in principle, practice, or promise. And so if we're not looking at our faith in that way, as a journey, as an experience that includes truth, and when I say truth, I'm meaning, you know, literal propositional truth. Jesus is the Son of God. This is what that means. This is how he came. This is the promise. This is what he accomplished. This is what happened. The story, the good report, the God speak, the God spell, the gospel. There's a thousand years there. So when we think about faith, you hear me use the phrase resting. Almost holistically when I talk about believing or faith. Why? Because it is the essence of the revealed word of God from the beginning to the end. The reason God talks about creation is to show that only he can do the work of creating life and order. And if he does that in the nothing into everything... He can surely do that in the context of righteousness to create a people for himself and declare them righteous through all, with all righteousness. It means nobody's getting away with anything. Every sin, every evil, every error, every failing, every thought, every word, every deed, every desire that has fallen short of his holiness is paid for. Justice is satisfied. Every debt is paid. See, that's the narrative of Scripture. But we are so smart, and we're so, we, we really are. I'm not saying that sarcastic. We're smart. Human beings are very intelligent. Even the dumbest ones I know have incredible intelligence. I've spoken to some of you. No, I'm just sure. joking. And in that intelligence, we have the freedom to think and infer and derive and expand. And we get to the place where all of a sudden we start thinking about some really cool stuff. And it makes good sense. But we have to filter that sense through what is clearly taught to us in the scripture. That the Bible is the final arbitration of everything we think and do. And we do so in the context. We do so holistically. We don't find contradictions in scripture until we begin to parse it out in pretexts. And what that means, we tear it apart and create all sorts of different things in little parts rather than looking at the whole. And I use this illustration a lot by talking about a, 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 uh, what do you call that thing? A cookbook. (laughs) I was going to say the thing you can find food things in. A cookbook. That would be a menu too, right? And we just can't go in there and put our finger on this page and put that, out and four or five pages later and 25 pages later and just get a whole bunch of stuff and all these ingredients and throw it on the table and say now we're going to cook whatever what are we going to cook and we go back to the very first page and go, okay bacon and there's not even any pork meat on the table and that's what we do sometimes with the bible that's what we do in our minds and we're not even aware of it We just do it, and we come to these conclusions. Some of us think through, like me, I have inner dialogue continually, always, all the time. I've done better with that because now I do it outwardly. I talk to myself outwardly. Why? Because when I hear the nonsense, I can rebuke it. I'm not kidding. It works. You get up, you go, man, this is going to be a terrible day. It sure is. Now, this is a great day. Why? For the Lord has made it. I'm not lying to myself. I'm proclaiming what God has said. Now, you might think that's funny, but that's the whole point of the Psalms. We sing the praises and the promises of God. We're honest about these things. We sing the word of God. We proclaim the word of God. We hear the word of God. We speak the word of God. And what we say, we believe. Renew our minds in that context. Faith. So when it comes to faith, what is faith? Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. I'm not going to do a whole lot here. But I want to draw on the essence that resting faith is an anchor to the immovable. Years ago when I started my public ministry, I called it Anchoring Faith. Catching name. Why? Because it really is the the centerpiece of my heart, the centerpiece of my soul and mind that I am anchored to the faithfulness of Christ. So today I'm going to explore how faith is rooted in in, in the divine work of God for our assurance and establishes a restful and steadfast journey in any circumstance. Now faith, verse 1, I'll let Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by faith, the people of old receive their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let's stop there. Now, I don't know when it was. It feels like just a few weeks ago, but... And I'm thinking about the timeline. It was probably 2018 when I preached this text. 2019. And we spent a lot of time in chapter 11 of Hebrews. I need to go back and listen to what I said and make sure I agree with it. (laughs) But faith... We spend a lot of time talking about it, we spend a lot of time sharing it, we spend a lot of time trying to live it, but do we really know what it is? Well, it's multi it has many definitions, it's manifold. The faith, sometimes in the New Testament, refers to just the gospel proclamation. The faith also refers to living out together in a community. The faith also can refer to in the New Testament, the the essence of what we hold to, our hope, our belief. The faith is also, what? The truth of Jesus Christ, the gospel, and so on and so forth. But there is an essence of which the faith is a resting place. The faith is a divine disposition. I want to say to you, and I submit to you, and I've spent years doing this, you don't believe me, just do the work yourself. Don't take my word for it, but the idea of a changed disposition of the mind, which we call repentance, is indeed faith, a resting place in the promises of God. That's the simple reality of faith. And faith is not something that we see or that we can go buy at the store, that we can go attach ourselves to in any real way. Faith is not effectual. In other words, if we believe hard enough, then we'll be saved strongly, (laughs) Faith isn't what connects us to salvation. In any tangible sense, faith is what has us rest in salvation in a real sense. And why is this important? Because, beloved, I think it all boils down to this. Everything that I've gone through in the last three years, every single little thing that I've gone through in life for my entire life, but specifically in the last three years, has centered around my faith. All of it. Whether it's economics, whether it's health, whether it's marriage, whether it's children, whether it's the church, whether it's relationships or friendships, whether it's theology, or whatever it might be, it's all matters of faith. Because I'm a believer. I'm a child of God. You, by the Spirit of God, have been adopted. You are also in the family of faith. So everything that we do is in some way attached to our faith, attached to our worship, attached to whose we are and who we are in Christ. And so all of that then, and I see, and I see the trials internally, the trials externally, the trials in some of you in your lives, and they've all been attached to your understanding and to, you, to the strength of your faith. Because what we all want and what everything that I've seen is that we're in a search for stability. We're in a search for rest. We're in a search for peace. Most people say, I just want peace. Most people just want to rest. You ever had passive suicidal ideation? You know what that is? It's not going to be bad when I die. (laughs) At least I'll get to sleep. Most working people go, oh, you know, death, it's not the worst. It's not like you want to die, but you go, man, when I die, it's just gonna be I'm gonna get some sleep. That'd be the heck of the note, you know. If God was a little humorous and we stand before him in our ethereal form, and he's got a rake. (laughs) Here you go. Nah. We're not working, beloved. But it's not passing out of this life that gives us rest. It's being in Christ. Our hope is not escaping this. Our hope is knowing we're established in him. And that when we stand before him, it's finished. And then one day we will stand before him in a new flesh, in that finished place. And so it's not, faith is not to be seen as this search for security. Faith is security. Having faith is resting in the security, in the stability, in the rest. But, beloved, it's not going to be without storms, without trials, without suffering. That is one of the greatest errands of fools in the Christian culture, is that we think that being in Christ and having the right faith will establish us in a way where we never worry, where we never doubt, and where we never suffer. That is not going to happen. We are going to suffer. If Christ suffered, we will suffer. If Christ was in angst, we will be in angst. If Christ cried out for mercy, we will cry out for mercy. So, seven points, I think, starting with this text. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. As we see there, very simply, assurance. Assurance. The conviction of things not seen. So right there, we already know that faith is, in every way, a resting assurance, a resting hope, a resting rest. In something that we don't have yet. And that's what all of chapter 11 of Hebrews begins to say. By faith they received their commendation. They got it later. Moses never entered the promised land. Abraham had to wait for a long, long time. He never saw it all. All these, over in verse 13, died in faith, having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Well, God never made his promise. He's made his promises, yes and amen, right now. But they are not to be misunderstood as present, temporal, earthly, fleshly, living promises. There are some, that, but they ebb and flow. So faith is an anchor. Resting is an anchor that gives us the stability. Faith is not belief in Not just belief in the unseen. Let's unpack this for just a second because I've got a lot here. It's an act of assurance. It's a confident expectation. It's akin to knowing that the sun will come up in the middle of the night. And beloved, I believe having true resting faith is absolutely, almost at all times, a spiritual thing. It's an internal disposition. And as I've stated... There are external things and disciplines that influence our focus and our hope and our assurance, but they do not change our place before our Father. In practice, having this type of assurance is living a life marked by a hopeful outlook. Even in great uncertainty. Why? Because our hope is anchored not in the shifting sands of our circumstances. But our hope is anchored in the steadfast nature of God himself, who, as Paul writes to the Christian Hebrews, cannot lie. Now, see, when I, when I say those things, sometimes I feel, because I read. I read you. I read the idea. I read the unseen. I read those who aren't in the room. And I think, this is what they're thinking. <laughs> It's a terrible, terrible, terrible disease. And sometimes I believe that people think, well, you know, that didn't really help me. And so I think, okay, I've got to help more. I've got to find more. It's not on me to help you, except to show you, to reveal to you, to give you the truth of God's promises, to continue to help you see that the nature of your faith is going to be directly relative to the discipline of your holding the... Uh, the Word of God in your hand and reading it, to be reminded of it. And the way you feel about your assurance, the way you feel about your rest is going to ebb and flow depending on the world around you and the world inside of you. So it is okay that you doubt. It is okay for you to say to me and to anybody else in this church, I don't believe this doctrine or this doctrine because I've been thinking this way. It's okay for you to be wrong, it's okay for you to be mad, it's okay for you to curse and scream in your spirit because God seems so far away, but we're together, and together we will resolve to rest. Quit putting on a show, beloved. Nobody's, nobody's deceived but you when you pretend. I remember conversations I had with mentors through the years, and one of them talked about how David got it wrong in his psalms. And his premise was this, that David whined and complained and fussed, and you know, most of it was his own doings, and he wanted God to intervene. And so yet David's attitude was wrong in the context of what we should see in glory, But David's attitude was absolutely right because he's human and he was actually displaying the very nature that every one of us carry and hold and how we should live and how we should approach our Father in heaven with boldness to come bold before the throne of grace in our time of need. Even when we're sinful. Because are we not ever, are we never not sinful when we approach God in reality? And the answer is yes and no. We know ourselves but in reality before our father we are sinless why because Christ has satisfied God's righteousness and see what does that leave us sitting still going you know sitting still with nothing to think about but how that's the conundrum that's the wow of truly being born again is that we're like now what am I supposed to do Exactly. Walk in a manner worthy of such rest. Walk in a manner worthy of such hope. Walk in a manner worthy of such love. Oh boy, I was at rest until you said those three things. You see, God's character, at its core, the nature of faith remains a divine mystery as elusive in my mind and intangible as the air we breathe, yet as essential as the gravity that holds us to the earth. Faith has been the quiet assurance in God's sovereign work. Faith is not an intellectual attainment or a doctrinal or doctrinal precision. Faith is not the outcome of rigorous study, but a restful disposition granted by the divine. I said it this week, this way, in my own writing. Faith is a repose in the efficacy of a salvation fully wrought by Christ. So where does that put us? Faith is confident assurance in things hoped for. Our attitude and our mind and our focus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and in many other places, put our mind not on that which is temporal, but on that which is what? Eternal. That is not a struggle. That is not a problem. That's a war. And that's why being together in, these, in this context to hear these things is so important. You can turn to Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6. You probably know them by heart. Point number two this morning will help us to see that faith rests in God's promises, not in our own understanding. Lean not. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will make your path straight. Or some of your versions say He will direct your paths. See, embracing faith's rest involves, and I've already said this, you know me, I preach ahead of where I'm going. And I look at my notes and go, oh, I've already said that. But embracing faith's rest involves acknowledging that our understanding is limited. (laughs) I'm going to say that again. Resting in faith acknowledges that our understanding is limited. The mysteries of God are beyond our full comprehension. We are not able to know everything and understand and approach everything we even know about God. And so we have to just rest in the sufficiency of who He is, not in our understanding of Him. Oh, what about John seventeen three? Absolutely, I'm glad you asked that question. This is eternal life, Jesus says. That you know the one true God and the Son whom He he has sent. Does that mean that we must know the theological principles of the character of God and His holiness and all of His attributes? No, it's not. It does not exist in the narrative and the prescription of Scripture. Does it mean we must know all the ideas and and what so many people call the doctrines of Christ? We must know such rich theology that we are able to espouse and, and, and spew out with great defense? All of the theological positions of the last 2,000 years? No! It must. It means that we must know that God has promised to know us and the intimacy of knowing us akin to the husband and the wife becoming one flesh is absolutely a divine mystery and it's supposed to make us go, wow, and just sit down and take a deep breath and be drowned and the efficacy of the Lord Jesus. And then we grow to know some things too, in our minds, but that knowledge is not what tethers us to our hope. That knowledge just gives us that knowledge gives us I don't even want to say ammunition, because that's not it more morsels, more flavor, more sweetness, of an overflowing, if you will, of an already established presence. To know and go, wow, but it's not for everybody and God doesn't call everybody to it. Embracing faith in the promises of God and not our own understanding is a humble admission that we can only see a part of the vast tapestry of His plan. And what's been revealed to us is extremely small in scope, but yet so deep and so wide and so far that we would never, ever be able to apprehend it. But there's comfort in this rest. Not resi- it's not resignation to ignorance, but it's a peaceful trust in the one who knows all things. <laughs> this is why I say John chapter 5 is, is an evangelistic tool. Number One is that the writer tells us that. He tells us that. He tells us that these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. I meant the, um, John chapter 4. And all the theological arguments and all the historical arguments and all the, the, the moral arguments and all of the different things that the woman from Sychar begins to describe to Jesus. And Jesus does this very intentionally to tear down a lot of things in our mind as we read this for what it is. And then she comes to a resolution and says what? She says these words. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, the one to whom you speak, I am. Why are we worried about getting it all right? And the irony behind all that for, for, for sometimes in our lives when we feel like it has to be alright we spend more time on the what is not the gospel than we do what is the gospel because the gospel in its simplicity is sufficient enough so we have to, in order to have time to fill the 24 hour weather channel of theology we have to continually talk about what is not which is absolutely pardon my French, asinine. And I believe stands on a ladder of great hubris. In other words, it's just prideful and arrogant. And oh boy, have I been guilty of that. And we'll be again. But that's okay. Maybe you all will say, hey, where you going with all that? Simmer down now. We don't have to have all the answers to have faith. To have a strong faith. We just have to trust in the one who does. It's a pilgrimage to the heart of, the divine, of, of divine trust. Resting. And when we return to the pristine scriptural revelations of God, it, He will illuminate the path to life. Not study it with a pencil and a paper. I used to teach that stuff. You know, you really study your Bible, get a pad and a pencil. I don't even know where I heard that. It's okay. You don't need 12 colors and a highlighter and 9 notebooks with 15 sections each to read God's Word. You just need to open your ears and hear it. I mean, that'd be like getting a love letter from your spouse. And doing a diagram of every sentence, parsing out the definition of every word, underscoring everything. That's not exegesis. That's insanity. I guess if it was written in a language you didn't know and you had to do that, that's fine. But then when you get to the meaning, write it out and live in it. Let's do it. Faith is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. A serene confidence that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to the day of completion. True rest in faith comes not from understanding the depths, but from trusting, trusting the one who holds the depths in his hand. These little turns help me really solidify what I'm trying to say every day. In the surrender of our understanding, we find the peace of faith anchored not in our knowledge but in his wisdom. In the tapestry of faith, each thread of uncertainty is interwoven with the strong cords of divine promise. Faith invites us to rest in a knowledge greater than our own where divine promises become the bedrock of our peace. And i could go on i have 75 of those for today they're not for you they were for me in ephesians 2 8 9 i've alluded to it this is point three i've already said it that faith is a gift faith is a gift from god for by grace you have been saved through faith which and faith and this is not of your own doing It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one can boast. You know, the boasting of the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Remember the boasting of the Pharisee? What was the boasting? See, sometimes we think boasting is like, man, look what I came up with. Look what I discovered. Look what I know. Look at me. Look at me. Pick me. Hey, everybody, pay attention to me. I've got all the answers. woo No, boasting is also, thank you, God. For what you've done in me. Thank you God that I know this. Thank you God that I'm this way. Thank you God I'm not like that. Thank you God I'm not ignorant over here. That is arrogance. Why do you say that? Because that's what Jesus says is arrogance. Because that's not resting in the divine promises of God's character in the Messiah. That is resting in God transforming us to be self-righteous. And God doesn't do that. Matter of fact, speaking in the area of knowledge, speaking in the area where we have grown to understand things cognitively or at academically or intellectually, that's great. But those things according to Paul's writing to Timothy often puff people up to the point they leave the faith and don't even know it. They're preaching the precepts but don't preaching the propositions but don't live the precepts. Faith is a gift from God. We cannot achieve it through our efforts. We cannot achieve it through our knowledge. Nor can we achieve it and then say, Oh, when I came to this or that or this or that. When I came to understand election, then I was born again. That's a lie. And that's a misplaced faith. That is no different than putting faith in your own faith. Or faith in a decision that you made. Or faith in the way you've changed. Or faith in the fact that you're not an alcoholic anymore. Or faith in the fact that you're faithful to your wife or your husband. Faith in the fact that you don't get angry. Okay. I know a lot of unbelievers who are the... Faith in the one who is faithful. Knowing that it is a gift. The genesis of our faith is the grace of God. Not human effort or intellect. It is divine endowment. Freely given as God wills. This truth should bring relief And this truth should bring joy. This truth should bring satisfaction and fulfillment. It lifts the burden of trying to muster faith on our own and places the focus of God's generous nature at the center of our hope. In daily life, this means our faith journey is less about striving and more about receiving. Less about proving and more about resting in the ample grace of God. This exploration of faith is not academic. It's a pilgrimage to the heart of, the divi- of divine trust, the heart of the work of God. In every act of faith, in every time we live it out, we see the brushstrokes of grace, painting our journey with the hues of God's gifts. James chapter 1. Point number 4. What does faith do? Faith in trials produces steadfastness. I've said it already. Remember, having faith doesn't mean that we're going to approach things without fear, frustration, or we're going to avoid pain and suffering, etc., etc., etc. We're going to have trials. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all, joys my brother, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, what does that mean to test the faith? Okay, I used to rock climb. Robin and I used to climb, you know, a little thing. Then I, I learned to boulder, and I could do that and fall and not get hurt because it's short. But when you're climbing up 30, 40, 50 feet, you're tethered, you're anchored. Someone's belaying you. So there's a person over here that's roped in and got this thing in. And as you climb, they take up your slack so that when you slip, you dangle and don't pop. (laughs) So there's a lot there to put to the test. The rope, the harness, the way it's put on, the harness the other person's wearing, and their competence. First time you let loose, you better be trusting You better be trusting. You test it. Now you don't just jump off the mountain. I'm going to test it. You don't just run out into things. God said he'd protect me. Let me jump off into this fire. But trials test our faith. Why? Because it puts in our way an opportunity for us to either remember the promises of God and rest in them while we circumnavigate this horror, terror, or pain. Changing and continually recreating our, or not recreating, but redirecting our already new disposition to hope in him no matter what happens here. Or we take it upon ourselves and we push him out the side. We do both, right? We're reactionary. And we respond. But we always remain. Trials are challenging, but they are part of our faith and its growth. I want you to hear that again. Pain, suffering, trials, whether it be external or internal. And I keep saying that because we have ignored as a church, as a culture, for as long as I've lived internal trials. And we've made them, we've mocked them. And it's that's sad. And it's Unloving. So that's why I keep emphasizing internal, external. (laughs) Because the majority of our pain is in here. Fear. While trials and suffering are challenging, they are instrumental in strengthening and deepening our faith. They're not just obstacles to be endured, but they're opportunities for growth. Faith, when tested, becomes more resilient, like a tree strengthened by the wind. The steadfastness, let's keep reading. I didn't finish reading. Count it all joys, my siblings, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If anyone lacks wisdom, they just need to ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. But let them ask in faith, resting, and the assurance of knowing God's word is sufficient. Even though I don't understand it, I don't really know how to apply it, I'm not really sure I, under, I believe it, but I'm going to rest in it. I know that it is true, but that doesn't mean that you believe it. We'll get to that next week. Knowing something is true is not faith. Knowing something is true is not belief. And I want to try to parse that out carefully in a sermon (laughs) not a point without doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind and when we doubt what God has promised we're not going to receive what we're looking for double minded unstable we're looking for peace (laughs) we have to rest In practical terms, this means that when we face suffering, trials, and pain, we do so with an attitude of growing, not despairing. Knowing that these challenges are shaping us into more steadfast believers, not stoics. Oh God, if that were just only the way, I could do it. It's not the way. Poetically, I think about a garden. I think about a sculptor and the garden metaphor. Trials of the rain that nurtures our trust. Bringing forth the flowers of steadfastness. In the context of sculpting, the trials we endure are but the chisel in the sculptor's hand. Shaping our faith into a form of beauty and strength. James chapter 2. We get this little place down here. and For those of you who are hobby theologians, you get to verse 14 of chapter 2 and go, ha ha, we see the conundrum. I remember I had to do an entire paper on that in one of my master's degrees where we had to look at what James was saying versus what Paul is saying and see where the problem is. And there's no problem at all because there's a context. There's a point to what both of them are saying. They're saying the exact same things, different audiences, different context, different instruction. What James is saying is that faith is expressed through service, works, and love. Now, doesn't John say the same thing in 1 John? Doesn't Jesus say the same thing to his disciples? And what was happening in James's tribe, if you will, churches, is that people were showing favoritism. They were unloving. They were loving this group over here because of what they could do for them rather than just being loving. They were serving this group over here because they were dignitaries rather than serving the, you know, the smelly guy on the back row. They were trying to clothe natives rather than just love them in their own culture. Ridiculous stuff. I mean, you start thinking about it, you start thinking about it. But the expression of faith, point five, is through love and actions. And so we get down to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he doesn't have works? See, right there in our precious first world problem culture as Christians, we get all these things that are not said. We love to go to what is not being said. And then we impose that it is being said, and we don't want to hear anybody say otherwise. So we say, what is he talking about? What works? Well, he ask him as a question. Can that faith save him? Oh, faith saves me. See, so there's, two, there's two aspects here: The truth of Christ. Trusting. If a brother, then he explains it. Verse fifteen. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and someone, one of you says, "Just go in peace and be warm, be full," without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, what does that mean? Dead? Does that mean lost? It means unconverted. No. Brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you meet trials. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. sisters, Hey, my siblings, hey, my precious siblings in Christ. Hey, the regenerate, awesome, holy, anointed ones who share the glory of Christ. You have dead faith if you're not working. Here's the illustration that we give, we see in Paul talking to the Ephesians and the Colossians we see also Peter in some sense it's like having a marriage that doesn't talk that doesn't work doesn't strive it's dead still there it's dead it's like getting up every day and just making sure your children are alive but you see them hey you're still alive in here when it's bedtime okay glad You know, you find them a couple of months later and they're eating cheese Whiz and crackers in the back of the closet. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a dead parenting issue. As long as the closet door's not locked. Love through actions. Genuine faith naturally manifests in our actions. If we rest in the grace and the love of God for us, it will overflow in our lives. To what degree? We can't say. And in these people's lives, it had backed up and was non-existent. So what happens? James says, hey, get alive in your faith. Put teeth to your faith. Put shoe lever to your faith. Put some action in there. Don't live dead before the Lord. Let your life be a testament. And why do our lives go there? Why are so many people so academic in their faith and understanding, saying that it is their faith, but yet they have no real pressing because they have settled in an understanding rather than living an experience? They're holding on to what God gave them years ago rather than experiencing what God is giving them today. Serving others and loving others is how our belief is seen most clearly. It's the tangible expression of what we believe, the hands and the feet of our faith journey. Practically, this means our daily interactions are opportunities to demonstrate what we really say we rest in. Kindness to a stranger, patience and adversity. I'm writing a little booklet on patience right now. I want it done now generosity to those in need. You didn't catch the joke. Our deeds, in some sense, are echoes of our faith reverberating through the chambers of our daily encounters. In the sympathy of, in the sym- symphony, not sympathy, but sympathy be good too. We talked about that a few weeks ago, but it's the symphony of our faith. Our actions are like the notes in the medley that bring the love of God to life. First Peter chapter one, flip over. I tell you, we get the Hebrews, James, and Peter. Point six. Faith has endurance. The hope of eternal life. Starting at verse three, I cannot read this text. I want to get to verse eight and nine, but I cannot read this text without reading from the beginning of verse three. First Peter chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, who has, excuse me, Uh, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who you, by God's power, being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, obviously, though now for a little while, if necessary, You've been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the genuine testedness, excuse me, the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which also perishes by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The point I want to make today, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, You trust in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. And then Peter goes in there and starts talking about the prophets and the angels and their whole purpose in life was to look forward to and to watch this come about. Imagine your whole purpose in life was just to tell about what was going to take place one day and you never saw it. And then your only other purpose in life was to just celebrate what you did see. (laughs) It'd have to be really awesome. It'd have to be the most amazing thing that could ever, ever exist, the most amazing reality that could ever be known for us to waste our lives and our existence celebrating And looking forward to something that we'd never see. And according to the promises and the character and the nature of God it is. And that's the starting and the ending point of what really resting in the promises of God is all about. The enduring nature of faith is anchored in the promise of eternal life. Hope that is not fleeting. It's not just a wish. But it's a secure expectation that is guaranteed because of the faithfulness of God. It transcends the temporal and it anchors us to the eternal. So as we live out our daily lives, this means that our perspective is and should be shaped not just by the immediate. But by the eternal giving us a hope that is steadfast and endures beyond the momentary trials and troubles of life. I believe in this embrace of faith, what God has granted for us and its enduring power that we touch eternity. Holding on to a hope that outlasts the very cosmos that displays it. The final point. Living out our faith. These should have been seven sermons, but oh well. A daily journey. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's hard to read that without going through the entire chapter 4. And then in order not to set that up correctly, you have to read the first three chapters of 2 Corinthians. So I encourage you to read 2 Corinthians. I know it's not John, but read it anyway. Just read it. In chapter 4, we see, we see Paul's resolution to expressly tell this really infantile church that the ministry that he has is by the grace of God, by the mercy of God. And because of that, no matter what he's experienced, listen to this now, no matter what he's experienced and everything that's come against him and all the people that hate him and everybody that's maligned him and everything that's happened, all the loss that he's had, Everything that's going on with Paul. He said, I'm not losing hope, and we can't lose hope, and you can't lose hope. Why? Because it's by the mercy of God. Our ministry, our lives, our very breath is by the mercy of God. And it has a greater purpose than just this mundane, oh, 100 years, I'm gone. And we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We don't practice cunning, we refuse to be cunning, we refuse to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we just say what God has said, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And when other people don't hear the good report, when other people go, oh, that's ridiculous. Other people say, I can't rest like that. You know, understand that this was not a I don't believe in the divine or I don't believe that Jesus could be raised from the dead. In Paul's day, especially in Corinth, it was an issue of I am not believing that I can just sit on my butt and sit in the presence of God's grace and hope that I am okay. Yes, you can. And you must. And you will. If you're reminded to do so. Otherwise, it's going to be a very, very trying life. And we're going to live as imposters and not even know who we really are. But if our gospel's veiled and people aren't coming to believe in Christ and rest in Him, it's not our problem. It's not our mission to make people see. It's our mission to just proclaim simply. Is evangelism. Sharing the faith. Because if it's veiled, it's only veiled to those who are perishing, who God has blinded their eyes to keep from them from seeing, what? The light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Oh my goodness! Then what's their hope? What's the hope? Where is it? Well, what we proclaim is not of ourselves, but as Christ our Lord, with ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Christ. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. You see, this is where we get the allusion, the looking back to the creation account, which is the point that it was written, written that we may see that only God can call light out of darkness. And then John undergirds that by saying that the light that's called out of darkness is the light coming into the darkness, who is Jesus Christ. And then the people of Christ, as they live out their life, not as separatists, not as Puritans, but as individuals and then collectively as a whole. People who are different, people who are upset, people who are ugly, people who are nice. And we work together by the grace of God to, to, to be a light unto the world. Not to transform the world into our desire and our likeness, but to proclaim to the world the person of Jesus Christ. Simply. Simple grace. God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this treasure are in jars of clay. Us, we're jars of clay, so that it shows us our passing power belongs to God and not to us. Why? We're living a very afflicted life. We're hurting. We're suffering in every way, but we are not crushed. We're confused and perplexed. We don't know what's going on, but we are not driven to despair. People hate us, and they want to kill us. We're persecuted, but we are not alone. We've been struck down. We've been beaten. We've been arrested, but we have not been destroyed. Because we are always carrying in our body the death of Jesus Christ. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies, in our lives. For we who live are always being given over to death for Christ's sake. So that the life of Christ may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us. And we rejoice so that life may be at work in you. See, it's not a come to situation. It's being in Christ. So we believe and we know that God is going to be raising us from the dead. And He's going to bring you with us into His presence. It's all for your sake so that as grace increases, extends to more and more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, to see God for who he really is, so we don't lose heart. Verse 16, 2 Corinthians 5, 4. Our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is renewed day by day, for this light momentary, this simple little tiny pain is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, and I've already talked about this, that's why I read it, to the things that are unseen, not to the things that are seen. For the things that are seen are just passing through, but the things that are unseen will last forever. So, now, we know that this little life that we live, this little tent we live in, is, is, is dying. is going to be destroyed. And we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. Oh, we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. We talked about that earlier, right? If indeed by putting on it we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He has prepared us for this very thing as God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always, the point today, of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by what we see. We walk by resting in the promises and the character of God. And this is a journey. It is not something that's just going to happen and then we're settled in it. It's every day. It's multiple times a day. We are going to ebb. We are going to flow. We're going to unbelieve. We're going to believe. We're going to be deceived. We're going to be undeceived. We're going to be challenged. We're going to find security. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to be afflicted. We're going to be perplexed. We're going to be struck down. But we are not going to be destroyed. We are not going to be left alone we are not going to be driven to despair we are going to rejoice and we are going to do so because we know that the power of God and the promises of God are in the person of Jesus Christ for his people and there is no escape from such love period and that's the end of it so walking in faith is a daily endeavor It's not about grand gestures, like I said last week. It's not about grand gestures and doing things and getting on the front of the magazines and getting being known from all the different people. The people that did most of the work in the New Testament aren't even listed in there. Just the people that wrote about it. Why? Because we've got their names recorded. If they didn't write it down, we wouldn't know who they were because they weren't that important. They weren't that known. And after we die, we're just really not known anyway. We're not here to be known, to make a difference that we can see. We're here to be a glory reflection of Christ. A glorious reflection of Christ. Faith and walking daily by faith is not about grand gestures. It's not about social media presence. It's not about this great belief, but it's about consistent steps of trusting and resting in the promises of God. It involves making choices each day that reflect our faith, finding God in the ordinary, and seeing the extraordinary in the mundane. This daily journey of faith means that every aspect of our lives, beloved, from the mundane to the monumental, it is an opportunity to exhibit, to live, to hope, to rest, and and trust in God's faithfulness and sovereignty. It is this rest, and it is in this rest, that any transformation occurs. You want to know what it means to be transformed from one degree of glory to another? It's about being restful. I need, to tell, I need to tell you about that more clearly. Progression from glory to glory is not an ascent to personal holiness, an ascent to personal Christ-likeness in any way except where Christ trusted and rested in the one who's faithful and simply in the mundane found the miraculous. It's a journey deeper into the rest provided by Christ's work. Faith is a tranquil state of our lives where as believers we do things and we become who we are not to gain salvation but it's a natural outflow of a life anchored anchored in the certainty of Christ's victory. So faith is not just what we No, faith is not just what we say is true. Faith is not just saying believe, but it's resting. And that resting is a journey of grand proportions that never has continuity except rest and restlessness. (laughs) One doesn't exist without the other. But there is a promise that keeps us from going off the cliff. And that is that the restfulness will one day be replaced the restlessness forever. And now we can sing and thank God for it. Now we can take this table and remember how and why it's true. Because the body of Christ was broken. And the blood of Christ was spilled. And He said it was finished. And it is. And He was raised to life to bring us to Him. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be committed to this understanding, to this teaching. Lord, not in our own way, but in your divine giftedness and your spirit working in us and through us. Father, I pray that you strengthen our faith as a family, as a church, individually to help us to trust in your promises, to help us understand how to lead a life of of a journey rather than just hoping for what is not going to be. But Lord, in all of that, resting and being encouraged to be anchored into your divine presence, resting in the assurance that you, as our God, are with us through every storm and through every calm. And as we take your table today, Father, help us to remember the cost. Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.